Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Well, welcome. Happy New Year, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, Christopher. It's so great to have you back on. Um, I think you were podcast number one or two when I first started this podcast back in wow. the day. It was either you or Bucky. I don't, I, without looking back, without taking a moment to look back and jog my memory. I'm not uh-huh. sure. And uh, those were, yeah, those were the days before the Cosmos Hub had launched and before IBC was live. And um, yeah, it, I think 2018, it would have been in 20, sometime in 2018. Um, maybe even before interchain conversations, like that big meeting in Berlin. I, I don't remember if it was right after that or or a little before. So um, a lot of water has crossed under the bridge. <laughs> and uh, I'm super excited to be circling back to just jam with you. We always have fun conversations. And um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to looking back and looking forward with you. Well, thank you. And likewise, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying now, now that you mentioned it, I'm trying to remember that podcast. I think we discussed like existential risks or something like this. Oh, this is the best recollection I have. And then a bunch yeah, of random. And I was kind of like, yeah. I was kind of poking a little bit, you know, I don't remember too deeply, but I was kind of poking uh, a little bit on the, um, you know, what could go wrong with mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. you know, with, right, 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 with right, right. Connecting everything into an inter-blockchain messaging system and um you know where might we want to maintain sort of controls whether those are capital controls or privacy controls or community governance checks on certain functionality and so we did talk a little bit about that kind of like i guess sort of you know how do we think about structuring things versus sort of like infinite connectivity um so um, and that's one of the things I mean, the, the domain of that conversation um, seems like it's something that you've been working on a lot after shipping IBC. Um, so, well, maybe just for guests and listeners, maybe just um, give a quick introduction to to what you're working on now. You know, like, what are you working on? I think that kind of gets right to the point of things in a way. <laughs> but why don't you just talk a little bit about Anoma, Namada and um you know, just where you're spending your time and attention and the kind of research questions that you're currently digging into. Yeah, absolutely. So my background comes from, I don't know, some combination of naive techno-optimism, which I may or may not have been cured of. Now, looking back on it, I think it was naive, but what in three years will I think of, you know, on the next iteration of this podcast, how will I reflect on this one? So to be determined, but um, and uh, some amount of Aristotle philosophy, uh, which I'm constantly trying to trying to unify, which results in strange concepts. But um, before, I guess the last conversation we had was mostly about IBC and Cosmos, which I was working on then. And in the past two years or so, I have been working on the Anoma and Nomada projects. So of those two, uh, Nomada is simpler, so I'll explain it first. Namada is simply a layer one uh, Cosmos chain in that it uses Tendermint and speaks IBC, designed to provide multi-asset privacy um, as a usable product for people um, who want to send private transactions, do private public goods funding, um, all of the stuff that you might do with a blockchain if you just wanted to do payments, but privately, which sounds so obvious that I still find it difficult to believe that no one has really turned this into a product yet, but it's 2024 and it still doesn't exist. So we'll do it until someone outcompetes us uh, doing it, which I would also be happy about. Um, That's Nomada. And Anoma, what is Anoma? Boy, I mean, at first, I think Anoma was like, at the time of our last conversation, 
Anoma was my attempt to, at the time I was reading a lot of continental philosophy because um, it was COVID and what do you do when you're stuck in an apartment for six months? I mean, before then I had been keeping strictly to the like, I must live out of two suitcases limit. And I think that was a really good like self-discipline choice. And I completely lost it during COVID because I was just stuck in an apartment for nine months and I, I bought a lot of books. You know, also I had, I wasn't do, buying anything, right? I mean, uh, I had still income and I paid the apartment rent and, you know, bought some salads and energy bars, whatever it was that I ate during COVID. And I didn't spend any, any money on anything else. So I just bought some books. And uh, at the time I was going through kind of, um, parts of the continental philosophy tradition, um, Heidegger, Hegel, uh, and also parts of kind of contemporary media theory, discourse on systems of coordination, stuff like this, and trying to, um, you know, figure out, I guess what I was looking for after IBC was a better theory of product. So what I mean by a theory of product is a theory that explains what all of these kind of abstract and typically, you know, syntactical or, or kind of purely um, uh, programming language or tool-based uh, systems of coordination would look like from the perspective of the user and why a user would want to use these systems and what they would be, you know, the affordances that, that such system would offer them and kind of a theory of like what makes a system of coordination good or bad. Uh, you know, at the time I had some intuition that, oh, well, blockchains are useful for anything, but useful for kind of a collective coordination, uh, maybe as a tool of, you know, different particulars than the ones we have available to us at the moment, such as law and joint stock corporations and these other things. Um, and I was looking for a unified theory of what exactly that was, so that as opposed to um, kind of designing a whole system that would turn out not to have been used, you know, either not to be useful or to kind of be used for other things than the thing that I was hoping that it might be used for, uh, I would be able to, to, you know, make more informed decisions from the outset. Um, the other, I just have to plug this talk until everyone has watched it because it's so good and it will save you years. The other talk that inspired Anoma is a talk by Moxie Marlin Spike. I believe it's at 32C3, 33C3, one of those, one of the KS Computer Congresses, um, where he talks about why Signal wasn't decentralized. Um, and the basic reason he explains for why he made that choice, and it was a very conscious choice because a bunch of people were pushing him to like make Signal a federated protocol, more like Matrix, allow users to run their own servers, have the app like switch between servers, stuff like this. Uh, Moxie refused to do that because he said um, that the single highest cost you pay in federating a protocol is the speed of protocol iteration. Yeah. So if Signal accepted like, oh, we'll have all these users running your own servers, you know, great. It's more censorship resistant. I mean, there are benefits. He didn't deny that. But then, you know, it will be so hard to change our protocol because every time we want to change the protocol, instead of just like pushing it to, you know, Signal's AWS region, um, we have to coordinate all of these like independent software developers who have preferences and different Unix setups and whatever it is to update the protocol. And then we will lose to Facebook and to Google and to, uh, you know, I guess WhatsApp. I don't I don't know if WhatsApp was separate then or not. All of these other corporations who can just iterate on their protocol instantly because they control the servers. And, you know, our goal is to build privacy for regular people as much as possible. And so protocol iteration matters more to us than um, federation. That was his kind of argument in the talk. Um, and that argument, sadly, despite like this lesson has been learned in the collective 
collective, you know, knowledge base and it's on the internet. I think very few people in the blockchain land understand this like trade-off that yeah. if you get your protocol wrong and you deploy something, you know, IBC is a good example of this. I think IBC, um, you know, uh, I don't have a unique position on this. It's just my own perspective, but um, IBC got many things right and got some things wrong. And in both cases, it's kind of too late to change most of those decisions, or at the very least, it's going to take years, you know, to um, like to change how channels work in IBC or to negotiate upgrades across this, you know, complex network of change. It's just very, very time consuming. And so the cost of getting those decisions wrong when you're building a decentralized system is astronomically high. It's like um, higher than anything else. You can do almost everything else right. You can like make most of the right choices. You can communicate to the right people. You can explain how to use the system in the right way. And if you make one or two protocol design decisions wrong, you're just screwed. It's very unforgiving, you know, but... So, um, so this is a really great, I mean, this is a really great topic. And I definitely, we feel that pain point at region network development at R&D all the time, right? Where, where we chose to develop region ledger and this decentralized you know, protocol, but also that makes focusing on the specific stakeholders and user groups and science problems really much, much harder because, right. you know, so I have a couple of questions. It sort of structures a couple of questions to maybe pull out some of what you've learned or how your thinking has evolved around this. Um, so you're saying that Anoma arose as a sort of experiment in trying to change your approach to product. I think that's yeah, what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I said what haven't... you said, and then you started talking about Signal and the challenge. And yet, Anoma is, if anything, seems like it's a deeper layer down of abstraction, thus the challenge of speaking about it. Um so the stakes almost, it almost seems like from an outside perspective, at least you almost like double down on the, you know, you got to get it right the first time we're going to start from first principles and we're going to build something, you know, having learned a couple of times, we're going to try this again and build something that is deeply, that's very deep down on the stack. Um, is that correct? It, as yeah, opposed that's... to somebody going like, hey, all I care about is this user and I'm just going to do agile development cycles on their behalf infinitely. And I don't have a sort of like first principle based sort of like paradigm that's that's leading me to, you know, maybe like have short term pain for long term benefit. <laughs> you know, it's just like pure short term pain avoidance as a as a product discipline, <laughs> which is maybe, you know, that's kind of like agile in a nutshell. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, maybe that's mm -hmm. maybe that's not completely fair, but I think it's it's kind of directionally correct versus this sort of like from first principles almost like philosophical or paradigmatic or even theoretical approach to product. Right. Um, yeah, that's, 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 I think, a very accurate characterization. Um, and one, you know, one reason that we choose to take this first principles approach, it's not, um, it's not that we think that it's like the right thing to do uh, or the only right thing to do. I think it's also very important to have a bunch of like short-term iteration going on and experimentation going on. Uh, but it's that I think that it's rare in the, you know, at least in the broad industry in which we operate. And the fact that there are many people pursuing this experimentalist approach 
in public means that we can kind of both benefit from doing something different, right? Because we can get all of this data. Like we didn't, you know, I haven't worked on Signal, but I can watch Moxie's talk and understand how some of these factors played into the economics that they were considering. And I can observe how Signal turned out. You know, similarly, I can observe different projects within the Cosmos and Ethereum ecosystems, which are live and are taking a, you know, often taking a more, um, let's just call it like, as you say, agile methodology or a shorter product cycle development uh, oriented approach and see how that goes and use that as to kind of like, like whatever theory of product that Anoma comes up with, our theory had better been a, had better be able to explain like the actual data, right? If the actual data, you know, doesn't fit the theory, then the theory is wrong. Now, what we want the theory to do more than that, we want it to also say like, you know, not only for these things that actually happened, you know, how will they go, uh, you know, well or not well and in what ways, but also for other things that no one has done yet, how will they go well or not well and in what ways? And if we have a good kind of like theory that's a few layers removed from practice, but still connectable to it in specific instances, then uh, this should help guide like our development choices to enable the kind of long-term uh, use cases that we want. So yeah, that's the, that's the basic reason for the approach. Okay, so what is Anoma? So so getting back to the thread, what you know, Namada is sort of privacy as a product um, in the blockchain space um, for for a number of different applications, but you know, transaction um, being maybe the biggest. And what's Anoma? Um, right. Um, so so uh, to give some more concrete answers to this question, uh, first there are, there are kind of two ways. One, Anoma is just a piece of software. You know, it's code that you download, you run it on your computer. Pretty much everything anyone is building in the space is some kind of software, Anoma is no different. Now, as a kind of, um, uh, you know, as a conceptual work, the best metaphor that I've found after a few years of investigating this is an operating system. So I'll say that Anoma is an operating system. Well, how, and, so how would, it, I was actually going to interrogate this a little bit. Could you compare, some listeners may be familiar with like Urbit, for mm -hmm. instance. Which is an op, which proclaims itself as an operating system, similarly, and maybe maybe has different, um, probably has a different political economic philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, and may or may not have different computer science approaches. I don't know. I don't know enough, but. Is that a good, is that sort of like the best um, benchmark or sort of like competitor or peer approach? Or is it like apples and oranges and it's not a very good analogy? Um, I mean, I think Urbit and Anoma are much, they're similar in ways that I definitely didn't realize at first. Like we didn't set out to build an operating system. Uh, mm -hmm. I had no background in that field beyond some you know, random college courses and no, you know, no conscious intention at the time. Um, you know, two years ago, I was just thinking about like systems of coordination, not operating systems in the computer science language. Right. But um, there are definitely, I mean, both projects are kind of, uh, they are, op they're both operating systems in the sense that they like abstract some kind of hardware and provide a way to write programs. And they're both operating systems in the sense that they like consciously identify themselves to be operating systems and try to consider design from that holistic perspective. Now, I would argue that Ethereum and Cosmos are also operating systems. Hmm. They're just operating systems that don't really realize that they're operating systems. And so they make a lot of, you know, ad hoc design choices instead of perhaps more systematic ones. Now, Urbit and Anoma are, they're operating, as I understand them, at least, they're operating systems at different levels. So Urbit is more, it is a network operating system, but a lot of what Urbit is trying to do is like replace Unix. 
right? Um, it's Unix plus like deterministic, um, uh, you know, reconstruction of message send patterns between peers. Urbit is not trying to provide like distributed systems. There's no consensus. There's nothing really in the way of, you know, zero knowledge proofs or programmable disclosure. Um, they are more focused on replacing Unix in the stack. And I mean, uh, speaking, uh, uh, I don't know, freely, uh, I think that's a good idea. Unix is not a very good operating system. Or rather, Unix is an operating system that was designed to solve the problems of 1970. And the problems of 1970 included, for example, that all computers had like eight kilobytes of memory or whatever. You know, I wasn't, I was not around. I don't know. They had very little memory. And so you could not make programs that used a lot of memory. You had to like um, make little programs that used a little bit of memory at a time. And you wanted, when you wanted to send input between multiple programs, you had to do it in a stream sort of way. And apparently, according to the operating system history that I read, this is why Unix has like pipes and this whole like serialization, deserialization thing, instead of just first class types in the operating system. So there are a bunch of like decisions that um, are really costly for applications built on top because Unix as an operating system doesn't do very much, right? Um, it, it has very little in terms of support for types or objects or kind of compl more complex memory management patterns that, as far as I could tell, were mostly made because of hardware constraints in 1970. And all of these, you know, computers that were running Unix on in 2024 don't have these constraints at all. Um, and so we're still using, you know, an operating system that's 50 years old. Um, so I, yeah, I think more people should be trying to do that, not just Urban. So, but uh, but Anoma is not trying to be an operating system in that, at that layer, um, the, in which, you know, like most people think of an operating system of like, yeah, I install it on my computer and, you know, it allows me to program that computer to do X, Y, right. and Z. Yeah. That's right. So rather than a operating system for your computer, Anoma is a distributed operating system. So it's designed to abstract multiple computers and make and them unify look like... them into a single operating, a single coordinated operating system. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or in some sense, a single abstract machine. Now, kind of like want the, to so be... like the world computer uh, Ethereum or Ethereum as world computer. Not to say that Anoma's um, ambition is to be a singular world computer, but that kind of like okay, we have this networked, yeah, sort of. Right, right. I mean, I think um, I think that metaphor, you know, the metaphor of a world computer is um a good one in some ways and a bad one in others mm -hmm. one way in which it's good i think is that it captures an idea of unity like there should be in some sense there should be one world computer uh you want like uh, some abstraction that everyone can use right now a sense in which i think that it uh, can be taken the wrong way is that it talks about it can be taken to mean like one logical world computer and one logical world computer a single sort of source source of truth um, implies one singular choice of who to trust. It implies one global trust domain. And this is, you know, in fact, what Ethereum, I think you see the kind of legacy of choice of metaphors here in the actual political structure uh, and socioeconomic structure that has emerged around Ethereum, where even the terminology, you know, layer two, layer three, uh, despite often appearing to be technological terminology, is really political terminology. It's yeah. talking about a relationship to the singular trust domain of the Ethereum main and Ethereum, the ETH asset. Um, and that, you know, uh, I think of one world computer in that sense, similarly to one world government. Um, and it doesn't, you know, doesn't inspire 
a lot of confidence um, uh, personally. I, you know, there may be large scale trust domains, but also I don't think that it, um, you know, civil like in computers in computer design nowadays, one of the challenges that both operating systems designers and developers have is dealing with the reality of um, multiple processors and non, you know, uh, kind of complex distributed ordering problems. And complex distributed ordering problems, you know, in my kind of sky high philosophical view, are not really a choice that you make as an architecture designer. They are just a fact of the way that the universe operates, you know, viewed from the perspective of the operating system designer. Uh, processing, uh, there's a limit to how much stuff you can process in one logical place. The most fundamental cost that you cannot reduce is the cost of sending messages, right? Um, and you can do more processing, but you need to do it in different places. You know, your CPU is already spread, spread out across space, and that it appears to you as one like core that proceeds in sequence is just like you know, the fact that the costs of messaging within that core have been um, incorporated into the speed that you perceive, right? But if you want to reckon with designing programs for, um, you know, even nowadays computers or certainly distributed operating systems, you have to deal with multiple sources of truth in ordering. Um, and so um, Anoma tries to practice this. So I'm going to just keep sort of like in a smooth brain sort of fashion, trying to grab analogies and you can keep uh, contrasting <laughs> and riffing. <laughs> so... So, you know, so so what I'm gathering is that Anoma is a, you know, it's a network protocol that allows a group of computers to to operate with consensus. Um, and then the applications that a network of computers um, and then run applications that require consensus. Right, uh, right. And to do so starting from first principles um, and aware that it is actually sort of like the, the, the build out of those applications um, requires a level of thoughtful design of that operating system to sort of achieve the kind of performance and usability that you know people need to build complex social economic um, tools to coordinate on different things. That there's just sort of maybe it's a you know so unlike you know I'm and I'm that last bit is sort of like I'm taking what you said about Ethereum and Cosmos as as examples of blockchains or consensus protocols that aren't conscious that they're operating systems and therefore maybe make mistakes um, that, that could be avoided in, I guess, sort of like programmability, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that that's uh, a much better explanation than probably my past two paragraphs. Um, so I'm not even sure if I would go as far as to say that they're mistakes. I mean, different the people have different like, names. Yeah, they, they optimize yeah. for something, but that, that makes it not achieve something that you and your co-founders at Anoma think is important. So maybe why don't we go there? Like, what's the thing that when, that when you look at existing... Uh, blockchain um, software, mm -hmm. you're going, oh man, like that doesn't quite, you know, and you, we started out with the podcast and you were mentioning, you know, sort of from, in, from a certain perspective, you know, blockchains are a new institution type. They do things either better or differently from a joint stock corporation or a government or other existing analog social systems that humans use to coordinate on different things. Um, mm -hmm. And there's the, like these first couple generations of blockchains, Ethereum, Cosmos, et cetera, 
achieve something, but they don't achieve what you're looking at thinking, oh, this is what could be possible uh, for blockchains as kind of a, as computational infrastructure and institution. So what is it that they don't achieve that you're sort of like that, that all the work, the research, the development, the funding, the teamwork, the community building around Anoma and, you know, I guess Namada is a first product being launched out of the Anoma ecosystem. What is the, you know, if you could point to what the gap is. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, so um, my, I guess, theory of what people, and not specifically, I mean, also me, but also other people, if I just build a product for myself, that would be a bit lonely. Uh, my theory of what people want out of blockchains as operating systems is that they want uh, an abstraction that abstracts over many computers. So they want a distributed operating system that abstracts the resources of those computers, that abstracts computational resources and storage resources, that abstracts um, the kind of uh, ordering and message sending between those computers, and that provides programmable disclosure or programmable privacy and programmable trust. And it is um, those things in kind of a unified whole I don't think have been provided by any existing um, the programmable software, I think. privacy, programmable trust, also programmable compute and programmable transaction. Programmable compute and storage, or just the so storage, 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 transaction, storage, transaction, or storage messaging. We could just say storage messaging, um, compute, privacy, and um, did, I, did I miss something? Um, yeah, programmable trust. Trust. Yeah, that's the big one. Okay, so so I'm, I'm just going to re reorder that in my brain. So what Anoma is attempting to do is create software that allows... Um, any network of computers to have access to tools that make it easy to program trust, messaging, compute, storage, um, and I'm always missing one. I always drop the fifth one. Uh, uh, programmable privacy, privacy. Yeah, privacy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and that none of the you know, it's like it, privacy is clunky on first generation blockchains. It like wasn't even really thought of except for as pseudonyms, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's so that's one thing. Um, also, at a generalized protocol, you have folks like Filecoin, or you have folks like Akash. You have people using blockchain technology to try to accomplish one or the other, like compute or storage. But it isn't just like a general toolkit that's available to anyone to just access and use. So you guys are trying to go down that de deeper layer and think from first principles, like this is the bundle of things that are like broadly useful across any application that anybody could think of. And everybody's hitting them piecemeal with their individual users or their individual projects. Um, and, you know, you guys just sort of stepped out and raised some money and thought, let's approach all of these from first principles to just make something that accomplishes those out of the gate. Yes. Um, and I must thank you for working with me through this explanation on this podcast. I wanted to try a new one in 2024, you know, New Year's resolutions. And I haven't tried Noma as an operating system before. And it's clear that I need some practice. But um, I well, think we're getting having that, that, you know, and I haven't like looked at the Noma materials or website recently. You guys always have great web pages and stuff. Um, great design team. Um, that five, that stack of five, you know, this is what the, these are. These, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. That that seems really useful, right? Right. It does. It does. We're going to steal it. I can already tell you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. <laughs> no. It's, it's great. It's like it's that's fantastic. Like it's not stealing because I'm just asking you questions and you're you know th so there's no 
no thievery involved here. So I'm uh, just co-thinking. So so privacy, tr trust, program pro programmable privacy, programmable trust, um, compute programmable. I, I'm using the word programmable. I don't know if it's quite right when dealing with compute and storage, but I kind of think it is, right? Because you might be prioritizing where the compute takes place or with whom or where the storage takes place and with whom and the parameters of that, and then messaging. And those are the five fundamentals that you're, and I don't know if there's more, but those are the five fundamentals that you're sort of saying any application to sort of in this distributed and decentralized future world in which there are digitally native institutions, meaning there are groups of computers and humans who want to coordinate with one another. Those are the mm -hmm. five things that make coordination possible and trying to build from first principles an operating system that allows those five things to happen, you know, seamlessly and with great efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that um, if you look at the blockchain ecosystem today, all of these components already exist. They just aren't very unified and they aren't abstracted at the right level. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one distinction maybe that's worth noting here is that programmable trust is not really, it's not at the same level as like programmable storage. It's like a level above everything, right? Because depending on who you trust, you will want to store data with different parties. Depending on who you trust, you will want to disclose data with different parties. So programmable trust really interacts with everything else. Um, I think there are kind of two common patterns in the blockchain industry today that are trust very and privacy, different. right? The same is true. The trust and privacy go really deeply together. And maybe it's right. even sometimes hard to pull them apart. Because if you trust someone deeply, you don't need to be private. You right, know, right, right. to which you distrust someone, you increase the level of privacy that you might want from that. Right. So I'm is another New Year's resolution, this one spontaneous. I am boycotting the word privacy. I refuse to use it. Okay. Um privacy, I, I do not <laughs> think privacy exists in digital networks yeah. i think privacy maybe it's maybe disclosure. it's disclosure like, you know, you're using the word they, disclosure yeah. right 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 i mean it's not we think of privacy as hiding right and in a world where light beams are bouncing all around causing problems this makes sense you know my windows are open if i don't want my neighbor to see what i'm up to i need to pull down the blinds i need privacy right i need to do something in order to block observations this analogy does not hold for digital networks. My laptop has my data unless I choose to send it somewhere else. It's, you know, we don't need to build privacy. Privacy is already there. Um, the only thing that, you know, the reason why we are talking about privacy in this way, you know, collectively, I would guess has a lot to do with surveillance capitalism more than it has to do with the fundamental, you know, properties of the devices involved. And if you just think of what we're doing with devices, well, what we want to do is share information with each other. We just want control over precisely what that information is. You know, using zero knowledge proofs, for example, you can prove specific properties about some data, which you know, something like passport, uh, without revealing all of it. Um, and that's the, you know, when you think like an operating systems designer, um, that's what you're thinking about is how to build this kind of programmable disclosure. You think about programmable privacy, it's like, well, what, you know, I don't need to make something private. I just need to choose what to share. And I think that we also want that concept to be kind of um, translated and reflected in an accurate way in the user-facing interfaces. So yeah, end rant, but... <laughs> Cool. And um, and you guys raised a fair amount of money to do this, right? Like good chunk, a couple rounds of funding. And 
with the idea that there would be a launch of a tokenized Anoma network that provides these kind of as services, essentially, to users. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, there's a little bit of a distinction here. So um, the we have raised funding, indeed, very lucky to do that. Thank you to everyone who helped. And um, we will launch an Anoma network token, or the Anoma Foundation will make a Genesis block proposal for such a token. This is, um, you know, it's more distinct. The launch, uh, the kind of way in which the network works does not specifically privilege the token. It's not like like with Ethereum, there's the thing that launched was the Ethereum blockchain, and then there was the ETH token, and the ETH token has a special role in the Ethereum blockchain. And certainly there will be a consensus performed by holders and stakers of the Enoma token, but otherwise you can run the Enoma network software and like not use that token. It has nothing, you know, there's so no there, necessary there is it, And is it like that, that the network needs to go through governance to create allow lists or to create other tokens that might be used or simply that like peers can choose to accept whatever digital message and or token exists or what's the level of like the token isn't central you know right i mean no all 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 of those choices are just made individually by peers uh all peers might choose to run some kind of on-demand consensus amongst themselves if they wanted to you know some subset of the current nodes running the network wanted to start a new consensus together um you know i mean i certainly hope that the enoma token itself will be useful but i view it as um, kind of very intentionally we want to separate these dimensions of competition of protocol competition and of asset competition yeah um and i you know we're investigating for example different kinds of um i think the most important thing for asset competition is distribution so we're we're investigating different kinds of uh maybe fairer distribution for the enoma token based on like uh, some kind of decentralized proof of humanity or something like this um and we you know aim to create something useful on that front as well but it is fully independent from the protocol um and you can just run the enoma protocol without using the token no one you know there's no there's no rent gatekeeping right um and bless your in... investors for allowing you to have so much uh freedom of um creative exploration that's awesome yeah i mean hopefully it's also a good strategy and i think that it yeah. probably is you know it's very difficult for what you see also in the blockchain space at the moment is a lot of protocol fragmentation especially in the ethereum ecosystem um and protocol fragmentation has very high user facing costs right oh my god like, i like recently i was i you know i like funding public goods and i'm a long time gitcoin user and experimenter and whatnot and i basically like refuse to use it at the moment because it's mm -hmm. just like I have to like I, you know it's like I've got 15 minutes and I want to fund I, I just want to like give my money away to some cool people <laughs> and sorry Kevin if you're listening and 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 Ben and Gitcoin team um not meaning to kvetch about you guys I know everybody's working hard it's not really Gitcoin's problem the problem is is that people the problem is what you just said which is that there's a conflation between asset competition and protocol competition so you have like a team like Optimism, which is there. It's great. There's a cool culture. They want to do retroactive public goods funding is all these amazing things to say. So not trying to mm -hmm, be a mm -hmm. hater, but they logically want things to happen on their L2. And so they're going to do a matching round or this, that, the other, which then forces me to move from Ethereum or Polygon or wherever it is over. And then I got to do this, that, and the other, and I've got to move and 
weight and bridge and then there's a little bit there's always a little risk because you're like you're moving things from one place to another and there's that moment of like dread for five seconds before or 15 or 30 or 15 minutes or however long it takes depending on what the product anyway it's um it's a real thing it's a really big challenge and like I, my i guess my observation is like i care there are people that i want to like you know do supporting fund funding little bits here and there like engage with i'm bought in philosophically i understand how to use the tech and yet i bounced off of that because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? i was just like Dude, I got 10 minutes right now. I gotta, I gotta do this other thing. I gotta do that other thing. I don't have 45 minutes to work through this, you know, challenge, this UX challenge at this moment. Um, and I can only imagine what it might be like for someone who isn't already kind of like bought in. And, you know, if like, if I'm just like, you're a casual user who wants to go fund a climate action or something like that. That is death <laughs> to me. And also disclaimer, like we have those places in region network user experience all over the place too, right? It's part of the problem with, honestly, it's part of the big challenge of it isn't, you, you, you mentioned, you know, the reason why Signal decided to stay sort of centralized, centrally managed as a service mm -hmm. um, being their ability to upgrade and iterate. But also we, sh this is a, common user experience challenge when asking people to manage public private keys and then having a disjointed protocol ecosystem in which there's janky ways to reconcile between protocols you know it just makes a simple thing like hey i want to go offset my carbon into this like oh do you have a kepler wallet do you have, do you have your region did you bridge axelar usdc over to the thing and did you put it on where's the docs for that and i don't you know anyway it sort of creates this whole crazy um rube goldstein style like in order to you know in order to crack the egg and <laughs> and fry it you have this giant contraption where everything's moving and you know so how is so i'm curious i'll just keep talking while you're looking for um <laughs> for whatever there I, I i guess it sort of raises the the big question that emerges out of this sort of like okay you know we have to be honest that the user experience in web3 is crappy and it's a giant barrier for adoption um in our case for people who for people and companies um, organizations that want to fund climate action, biodiversity preservation, local food sovereignty, whatever it is, having having to do with kind of like nature, ag, regeneration. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, how is Anoma in looking forward? How does the separation. So how does this or other things in the way that you guys are approaching things, how does the separation between kind of the protocol and the asset competition um, access um, or other special ways that you guys are approaching things help solve some of these massive UX problems to leverage these sort of distributed decentralized coordination technologies and have a great user experience. Right. Um, so I think one, you know, aspect of our approach, which may be interesting in this angle, is that separating out protocol and asset competition allows you to like standardize much more of the protocol without necessitating that users use a particular asset. So we can standardize, for example, things like, uh, you know, bridging or interoperability. We can standardize the description of programs. We can standardize 
the language for talking about abstracted storage and computation without uh, coupling that choice to some choice of who to trust that users might not want to make. So a lot of, um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the malaise or, um, uh, you know, economic uh, uh, theories of Silicon Valley have been misappropriated into the blockchain ecosystem, in particular SaaS. Uh, it's just been switched a little bit to protocol as a service, right? There's a lot of stuff that is protocol as a service nowadays. You know, Filecoin is like storage as a protocol as a service. Um, many, I mean, in some way, the Ethereum main chain is providing ordering or trust as a service for rollups or L2s. Um, there are many different little protocols in the ecosystem that try and provide different kinds of indexing as a service, statistics as a service, you know, stuff like this. And that that approach is quick. It has a kind of advantage in the short-term product market cycle because you can provide, you know, a library that your user can import and it kind of just solves their problem immediately. But the way in which it solves their problem immediately is by introducing an additional trust assumption. So in this model, the development and operation of the protocol and service are coupled, right? So now maybe the operation is done by a validator set, like in the case of Filecoin, but it's still coupled. There's a Filecoin protocol and specifically the Filecoin validators run that protocol. And it tries to provide this like magic abstraction, like this AWS-like abstraction for storage. And I mean, Filecoin is like, uh, you know, a, a seriously well-considered protocol to provide that kind of abstraction. Um, I just think it's the wrong abstraction. I don't think we want to provide that kind of abstraction because storage decisions, you know, to me are going to be coupled with trust and also coupled with locality. Like sometimes you want storage on the same physical machine where you're doing some compute. You don't necessarily want it to be like through this opaque abstraction barrier. So now it's very, if, if Enoma, you know, in, let's suppose that there were a different world where we tried to build a protocol that did all of these things, but then you had to use, you know, one asset all of the time. Um, that would be less compelling. I think, because then people would have to choose, you know, do I choose to use this protocol and pay in this asset or do I do nothing, right? Their choices are coupled. They have less freedom. Whereas in a world where they can choose to use the protocol, but not the asset, the protocol with a different asset, even just the asset and only parts of the protocol, they have many more choices. Um, so in some sense, I, I would understand software as a service or protocol as a service is just kind of trying to restrict freedoms, um, not always consciously, often just kind of, well, that's the business model. Um, I think that that will fail in the long term, um, but in the short term, it can you know sometimes work for a little while, but comes with high costs in terms of protocol fragmentation. And I mean, when I use Ethereum applications, I have no idea what trust assumptions. You know, when I use Google, at least I know. At least I've like signed a contract with Google, you know, Google Inc. or Google uh, Switzerland or whatever. Um, and I may not like them, but at least I know who my counterparty is and like what the escalation policies are. You know, there's a document that I read and the legal system ain't perfect, but like it's something, right? When I use Adapt on Ethereum, I have no idea. I have no idea. You know, there are five indexing providers. They're like somebody startup. I didn't sign contracts with any of them. I have like no escalation, you know, no specified way to resolve disputes if they happen. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, realistically, it's worse. Um, and I think we should kind of admit that and try and come up with um, protocols that can and interfaces that can render these 
trust assumptions much more explicit to users and give users control. Yeah, I mean, we definitely work on this a lot at Regen, just in terms of, you know, because primarily what we're doing is kind of like trying to facilitate bilateral or multilateral agreements between counterparties about ecological state, some of which our business is a party to and some of which our business is, is explicitly not a party to and they're only using mm -hmm. the protocol and not any of the you know various services that might be provided by us in order to help check or certify or whatever um yeah and it's super clunky and challenging to do do you have do you have software for me to fix it <laughs> <laughs> well i mean all of my all of my philosophical pandering is could also be read as an excuse for why is anoma so late um but uh 2024 oh, i can say that okay okay it's the year and, yeah. and so what's it so, you know, maybe maybe just to close out the cycle on Anoma and then we can kind of like maybe look a little bit um, more broadly and, and keep weaving it in as we go, but look a little bit more broadly as well. What What is a, um, you know, who is Anoma going to compete with and who is who is Anoma going to collaborate with? Who is Anoma going to empower? And who, yeah, who is Anoma going to empower out of the gate and who who is Anoma going to be competing with out of the gate? Right. Uh, I think there are two different answers to this question. It depends on whether you're talking about the protocol or the asset. And I want to distinguish them uh, because Great. I think the difference is yep. important. So um, Anoma, the protocol... Um, competes with um it competes with i mean I, I really do think like eventually the areas of competition for protocols and assets are just distinct so i would say that anoma competes with some other protocols for example we have uh, a different vm that's different than both evm and that different than cosmosm so in a certain sense that uh, that vm kind of competes it's you know competes maybe is strong it's like an alternative to you know do we think that i mean we think that intel competes with amd but do we think that an i7 competes with an i5? I mean, they're just chips, right? But they are alternatives. They fulfill the same purpose. And in that sense, it's an alternative to many other protocols. Um, you know, in operation, the protocol, I would say, competes with the financial system. Um, it, you know, uh, and it does a lot of things that the financial system doesn't try to do. Um, and it also, as an operating system, it competes with parts of the protocols used by other entities. So a specific example that I think is relatively legible is Uber. So Uber is a company that does basically three things. One thing they do is that they wrote a protocol that defines the rules for booking cars. They have a bunch of mapping algorithms. They have um, you know, uh, ways to represent cars and drivers and ratings and interactions over time and all of this stuff. They built a protocol. Thing two that Uber does is that they operate a centralized matchmaking service. So they match drivers and riders, right? Uh, when you want a car, when you're a driver, you tell Uber like your intent, basically, and Uber figures out how to match you. That's thing two. And thing three, uh, whether or not they do a good job of it, Uber is at least nominally an insurance agent or sometimes even a reinsurer, depending on their relationships with the operational cab companies. Uh, when you book a ride with Uber, you're kind of, they are your counterparty in some sense. And if something goes horribly wrong, you can complain to them about it. They might or might not do anything and they might or might not be liable. I mean, they're also like not a good actor in many ways, uh, but they kind of fulfill this role, right? So three, three basic roles. They built the protocol, they run a matching service, and they are an insurance agent. And Anoma aims to kind of carve the joints of some of these things differently. So in a world where someone built a car sharing application on Anoma, these three roles would be more separate. So there would be an application on Anoma. Anoma would be the kind of operating system. It would be an operating system that handles a lot of the parts of what Uber's protocol actually does. 
So Uber, I mean, Uber runs a distributed system, right? They have tons of cars and drivers. They have tons of servers all around the world. And Anoma as an operating system would abstract some of that. So Anoma would compete with part of the protocol and Anoma provides counterparty discovery, uh, which is very similar to the kind which like an application like Uber needs. So Anoma as an operating system will abstract some of part two, right? So that instead of there being one company which runs you know, counterparty discovery service. There could just be a bunch of solvers in different places. You know, the actual solving part of this is not that hard, right? Now, what Anoma does not do as a protocol is three. Anoma is not an insurance agent, right? Now, maybe you could use Anoma as an operating system to, you know, represent insurance contracts or other things like that, but there would still be different insurance agents. And of course, the thing which Uber doesn't really do is actually own or drive cars, right? They're just this like giant intermediary that does all the intermediary stuff. They don't do any of the actual work. Um, and there would be, you know, in such a Nova car sharing app, there would be like drivers and riders. And there would be one application, but many different trust zones. So instead of instead of there being this like one California intermediary to everything, um, you would use the like Anoma Uber application and you would basically roam between these different networks of um, solvers and drivers and other writers or, or what have you. And the advantage unless of this it's separate... more unless unless for some reason it's better and people have preference to, you know, like have a relationship with a single trust entity across different zones, potentially like there's a world in which you know that maybe it's more responsible and more user centric and you know who who knows mm -hmm. what its attributes are that would make this make more sense but i could conceive of a system it's like yep actually it's kind of the same provider across different jurisdictions that's making the guarantee um, for some reason right yeah yeah i mean i people can certainly still choose that i think many of the advantages of for example using uber you can still get in such a system just by standardizing the protocol. So one advantage of using Uber is that you have one app and you can go to different places in the world and you don't need to download 20 different apps and you don't need to figure out how they work and you don't need to make user accounts for each one. And this advantage is preserved by having a standardized operating system. So there can still be one application. It's just not controlled. You know, it, all of your data doesn't necessarily go to one person. So the ap application and the operator are separable. Um, another advantage of, um, you know, another advantage of using Uber is that you get one kind of counterparty or reinsurer. And that advantage is not, you know, if you want one reinsurer for everyone because they can balance more risk, then that advantage persists even in a world in which, you know, there's a Noma as an operating system. Uh, yeah. But these, these maybe are separable. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to double click there for a second. I mean, obviously it's incredibly compelling and exciting and double clicking on the sort of like the competition dynamics here, you, you know, the Uber in the Uber example is a great one, right? It's like, like forever I've thought, why the hell isn't there a cooperative Uber? Mm -hmm. And all the attempts to do a cooperative Ubers seem like they failed. And I have probably in a small way participated despite my preference otherwise in those comp competitors failing because when I go to city X, right? I'm going to pull up my phone when I get to the airport and pull up Uber and I'm going to like do instead of currently what I'd have to do is like, I've got a search is there a plausible one? What are my trust assumptions? Do I do I want to take a gamble on this when I know that this right, that the other right. and you, you know maybe I'm disgruntled and I don't like val shareholder you know maximization off of the back of my consumer choices and the work of the taxi driver or whatever and I'd prefer something else but at the end of the day i'm just going to like do the easy thing um so the network effect builds around the user experience 
And in our work, you know, just to kind of like be devil's advocate for a moment against myself and region network as much as against Anoma, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. the way, but um, to what degree are we being overly optimistic and idealistic when we think that we will be able to outcompete the network effects of an aggressive centralized counterparty by, you know, how great does the software have to be to actually overcome those entrenched network effects uh, essentially around usability and ease um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how great you know the, and on those two dimensions there's ease of updating and, and iteration that we were talking about with signal and there's ease of the user experience that i was expressing around my relationship with gitcoin for instance mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which of course is very different than like gofundme for instance if i had had a set of gofundme options i would have just done it in a heartbeat right because it's so easy it's so ridiculously easy that I just boom, boom, click, 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 done. It took me three minutes to fund all my friends to do the thing. And I did it once as opposed to like an hour and a half or whatever it was going to take me to like click through and get the done with it, bridge this and wait and then come back after it's been bridged and then do the thing and sign the thing and... Okay, so what is the level of awesomeness that Anoma or any of us who are competing in this decentralized space need to achieve to actually outcompete that ease of usability and the network effect that it engenders? Right. Um, I mean, I think it is a lot. <laughs> and I don't want, you know, um, my goal in design is to clearly articulate the way in which a system must work to kind of, uh, in this case, be decentralized or separate these roles in a way in which that it seems like plausibly we might want. Um, I don't really want to take a position on like how hard is it to actually dislodge Uber the company because I just don't know a lot about the specific operational mechanics of that question. I mean, I would say hard, seems hard. On the other hand, Uber is not that efficient as a company. Like they burn through tons of venture capital. You know, it's not clear in, you know, all else remaining the same is difficult, but in five years, all else will not be remaining the same. Like the world changes and what one thing you do see over time is that the cost, like political heterogeneity, tend, has a tendency of reasserting itself. You know, at first, Uber was able to just bulldoze over, you know, the local laws and local regulations. They could just move more quickly than the governments. They could kind of get their drivers to click buttons in the app or whatever. And what, I mean, in my very anecdotal, not systematic data, but what I've observed over time is that heterogeneity coming back. You know, in a lot of places in Europe, Uber Uber is just like they're really just taking a cut and they're really just taking a cut from American tourists and the locals have already switched and they're already. In fact, Uber is just contracting the same company, which actually operate like we're, it's back to a taxi company. There's a taxi company that operates the cars and Uber just like fronts it with the app and then they extract their cut for convenience from the tourists and Locally, I mean, the arrangement is not, um, uh, it's not that bad, actually, but, totally. um, yeah. no, no, but it's also not that different, like nothing, fair. there's just this, you know, American tourists are getting taxed, like that is the net, right? Um, that, that is the net of this system at this although, point. Although I will places. say, as an American tourist who's done both, who's like landed and been like, I'll just take a cab right. versus I'll take an Uber, actually, universally, it costs me less money taking an Uber because depending, of course, on the culture, but most taxi cab drivers will not think twice about being like, oh, my meter's broken. It's going to cost you whatever. And right, right, right. I don't fucking know how much it costs. And then I get there and then I look at Uber later and I'm like, wow, I'd pay double for that. 
<laughs> anyway. Right. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's, uh, you know, I think the service is real, right? Like it may be in fact quite reasonable to pay for this consciously. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're doing the wrong thing. I mean, I, I, I do much the same. Um, but I guess I am saying that uh, it's not, um, you know, in many cases, the, the, in some cases, the like political structure of what Uber is doing is already like not that far away from what I'm proposing. It's just there are several layers of inefficiency in between because the protocols aren't standardized, right? Uber is almost a reinsurer and kind of a negotiator on your behalf with some of these local companies. And then their, you know, data is going to multiple places that it doesn't need to be going. But like at some viewpoint, the change I'm proposing looks more like an internal reorganization to Uber systems and some choices being more explicit in your app and some protocols being more open source. And maybe the cost just goes down, right? Like it's not, you know, Uber, it's not, it's not necessarily the case that we're trying to make Uber, the company go bankrupt by replacing yeah. it with yeah, something yeah, yeah. else that does the same. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, understood. But, but creating the, I mean, I think creating the open infrastructure for competition to be happening in the right places versus sort of the wrong places seems like an important premise that is kind of underneath right. a lot of what you're talking about. Okay, cool. Well, so so we've sort of talked through some of you know who Anoma competes with at the protocol level, financial system. Um, other virtual distributed machines like um, the EVM, um, Filecoin's new virtual machine, probably on the list, Cosmwasm, mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. Solana's VM, um, which I don't know what it's called. I don't remember. Just what SVM, it's yeah. SVM, yeah. Yeah. Um, anybody else on that protocol competition uh, in the financial, you, maybe I already said this, the financial system. Um, I mean, the financial system as a whole, I don't, I don't pretend to know all the protocols that are involved there. I think there's some COBOL, uh, <laughs> a lot Swift, of spreadsheets, right. Swift, right. So Swift. Maybe, um, so maybe, so maybe you're competing with also like between the incumbent financial system and like Ripple or something like that, which is competing with them. And by proxy, Anoma offers an alternative to settlement essentially. Right. Um, Cool. Yeah, broadly, I think I think that's right. Okay, and then um, how easy is it for those incumbent, those competitors to use to just simply like look at what's going on and be like, sweet, I can use Anoma and operate my current business better. Um, I mean, in principle, it's it's pretty easy. You know, all of our code is public. Um, some of it is, you know, it's 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 unclear whether like when you look at the banking system, okay, so the banking system, especially in the US, is giant. It's like a ridiculous, you know, GDP, very flawed measure, but still measure something, it's like a ridiculous fraction of GDP. And the actual accounting calculations which the banking system performs are not that complicated, right? There's a lot of relationship management, there's a lot of you know, legal negotiation. I would argue there's a lot of rent extraction, but the actual protocol part of this, either way, is not super complicated. Now it's also not very standardized because it emerged from this, you know, history of non-digital banking systems, right? Which had, which really did do, you know, pen and paper accounting and needed to operate things in a much different way. And that has sort of been gradually transitioned over time, but it's not, you know, the system was never designed consciously to be even digitally first from kind of the, the grounds up. Um, so the bank certainly could adopt Noma. I mean, it would render a lot of what they're currently doing kind of unnecessary. And then you wonder, you know, are those savings going to be passed on to consumers or are they going to be captured in more rents in some way? 
um, I don't know. I don't, I think though that it, it kind of, um, uh, you know, our goal is more to make it much more feasible for someone to kind of compete with the banking system, like individuals with an application like Circles running on top of Anoma to issue their own, own currencies, um, uh, personal uh, personal credit tokens in the case of Circles, or even you and me when we're you know splitting a bill, we can use our own tokenized you know USD stable coins with like three clicks instead of paying some you know some issuer like Circle to do that for us. Um, our goal is to make it much easier for like everyone else to compete with the banking system uh, as you know issuer. I mean banks issue credit money right um, in various kinds of differently abstracted and differently legally classified ways. Um, but I would say that we want to at least make a protocol that standardizes all of the hard parts so that everyone could do that very easily. And then the choice of which monies to use can be made uh, perhaps on a more personal or a more trust-based basis instead of having this like designated class of bankers and banks who are specifically able to do that kind of issuance. Cool. So um, Anoma as the home of Kofi or collaborative finance, a, a home where it's easy to do mutual credit or just split a restaurant bill. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, more broadly, like, so there are the banking systems and then the bankers and the bankers have a very privileged relationship to the banking systems. Namely, they control them and yeah. only the people in the, you know, the world of money for the most part today, only the people who have that that privileged relationship can issue money and kind of see how it gets routed around and do all this other stuff. But the um, fundamental and... thing that you're saying is that by abstracting trust assumptions and disclosure assumptions and messaging protocols and compute and... Um, storage, it becomes pretty easy for people to rearrange the that sort of fundamental trust assumption around who is responsible for sort of like issuing and managing credit, basically. Yeah, that's right. All the way and, down to I mean, like you and I could do a peer to peer credit swap, or we could have a community group like circles or we or 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 um, and it can kind of allow for a gradient from large institutional credit and trust management down to sort of like very small individual to individual credit and trust management. And we can see what actually makes sense as a society. Right. I mean, broadly, the kind of thing which standardized protocols can do in terms of rebalancing you know, power across society is that they can give people who didn't previously have an ability to do something because it was too complicated uh, or too operationally expensive, the ability to do that thing. So yes, the bankers can use Anoma, but the bankers can issue money anyways. There are a bunch of people who can't issue any issue money anyways in this sort of uh, at least generally programmable way. And maybe Anoma gives them that affordance, which they didn't previously have. So it's kind of this sense in which I think about things. And we can't control this exactly and and don't try to, but you know, I certainly want to encourage applications like Kofi. And I think those are the most, you know, most genuinely interesting directions in the blockchain space at the moment. Totally. Broadly speaking. Um okay, now um who are who does Anoma compete with and or collaborate with on the asset side of things, like the digital asset? Uh, you know, we could have a whole side conversation about the moneyness of the Anoma token versus whatever other roles it might play. Um, so feel free to, to speak to that as it relates to, I guess, sort of the competitive dynamics and um, opportunity, I guess, of the Anoma token to fulfill a niche within the digital asset ecosystem. And, you know, like, 
who's going to want to hold the Noma um, and what are the things that they, they're like, what's the choice that they're making? Is it an either or, or an addition to? Um, yeah. Right. I mean, we have not progressed as far in some of these design questions. I will say as we have progressed in the protocol questions, we've been focusing on the protocol first. So some of these answers are a little bit more speculative. Um, I would certainly characterize this choice as, as is most choices in the digital asset ecosystem is you know, a both and one. I mean, it's always the case that users can sell one asset and buy another asset, but they don't have to. They could hold multiple assets at once. And if we, you know, treat these assets as kind of tokens representing some kind of ownership stake in different communities, then, you know, many people want to be in multiple communities. Um, so I think that that's, that's quite possible. You know, we don't, it, as asset designers, even we don't make that kind of decision. Um, I think one, you know, difference maybe between the philosophy of what I expect that we will propose in terms of asset issuance and distribution and the philosophy of many assets in the cryptocurrency ecosystem is our approach towards um, kind of distribution and scarcity over time. So a lot of assets in the cryptocurrency ecosystem uh, seem to take... <laughs> implicitly or explicitly some kind of hard money philosophy that is based on scarcity of the digital token itself. So like Bitcoin has a supply cap of 21 million and Ethereum is doing this burn thing now and kind of trying to reduce the supply. You know, even the Cosmos have recently passed a proposal to reduce atom issuance and it seems to be kind of progressing in the same general direction. Um, so, sort of. They kind of really just like decreased the upper bounds of an inflation, which is, con anyway, that was a very confusing from a monetary policy perspective. Maybe at some point right. we'll talk about that. Well, <laughs> I, I, I maybe, I, I did not read all of the material there, so my characterization may not be accurate. Um, that was definitely but... what was characterized, but the details of it, my understanding of the details is it, we just, we as a Cosmos Hub community voted to decrease the upper bounds of inflation when there's less than 66% bonded. Mm -hmm. But because there was more than 66% bonded, there is more than 66% bonded right now, it didn't at all impact the real sort of like inflation. So it's basically just decreased security for no upside. So there would have been ways to think anyway, that's what that's mm -hmm. my understanding of exactly what happened. It like decreased the upper bounds from 20% to 10% or whatever. Um, so it's, but, but to me, it was like a mimetic thing. It was like, look, we're, you know, like decreasing the potential future supply, but it really didn't make any significant difference in issuance as long as there's more uh, staking than not staking. Anyway. Interesting. Well, that was not exactly the same as my understanding, so I will need to go re-review the proposal. Double check and get um, back to me. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, in any case, I'm not, I think, yeah, I, I guess I have a pretty different theory of money. And in my theory of money, one thing, you know, you want to align the distribution and redistribution and holdings of an asset in your community with the people in the community who are doing productive work towards some shared goal. And the goal of a monetary design should be to like do that. And the world is always changing, right? People are always doing different things. They're always changing what communities they want to be part of. They're changing what they want to do. That's very natural. Um, and, you know, I think similarly, you want a, um, a monetary policy that is that kind of reflects that reality. And if you just design your money to be scarce, 
then you will end up with a bunch of people who started out holding it when it was cheap, continuing to hold it. And, you know, hopefully some of them will give it away or, or trade with it or whatever, but you're not really like, there's no alignment, you know? So in some sense, the thing which you're, you know, I just view different currencies as measuring different things, right? And the thing which Bitcoin right now is measuring is early adopters to Bitcoin. And that is, you know, something that you might want to measure. For example, if you wanted to give an airdrop to early adopters of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin distribution is a pretty good way to do that. Um, and, you know, as, I don't know, American institutional capital buys Bitcoin or whatever, then Bitcoin will start to measure American institutional capital. And if you wanted to give an airdrop to American institutional capital, I don't know why, but, you know, it's possible uh, then you could use Bitcoin's distribution to do that, right? But uh, that's not, you know, that's not a community, right? Because the distribution has nothing to do with production um, of some shared value or some shared good um, or idea even. So, you know, our goal in designing a monetary policy for ANOMA is rather to come up with a distribution policy that is designed to align the distribution of the asset over time with some actual thing that's going on. Um, and there are a few different ideas of doing this. One thing we're trying to kind of come up with is a more sort of decentralized kind of proof of humanity test that's just based on bilateral associations. So different like, uh, you know, you and I, for example, could use our public keys to sign an attestation that we think the person controlling the other public key is human. And if you have a whole graph of these, that's not fully, you know, you don't want it to be known to a single observer, but we can do some kind of decentralized proof of humanity where I test a bunch of links from you to me in the graph if I want to see, you know, if given some trust assumptions, we think that each other are real humans without revealing any other information. And I think this kind of test, um, which we're still in the process of sort of theorizing and designing, could serve as an interesting distribution mechanism. Um, so that's one thing we're exploring. Another thing we're exploring is a kind of different kinds of um, you know, voting for public goods funding, retroactive distribution, different kinds that don't require, like, don't necessarily require a centralized point of consensus. And then I think that distribution would be oriented around, uh, you know, different things that the Enoma community is producing. So, yeah, I would say over time, um, you know, the way I conceptualize the competition of assets, at least, is that assets are, represent different or they measure different communities and they measure different uh, not exactly values, but different like practices of values in how the distribution function of each asset uh, tries to align with uh, people who are doing a different thing in the real world. And if you want to support that thing in the real world, you could hold or, you know, retroactively fund uh, or even purchase that asset. So I, I, I view people as kind of voting in that sense. Um, and that's how we would conceptualize the problem. Nice. So cool. for example, Regen, I would, I mean, I uh, would view, I don't know if this is accurate, but holding and kind of supporting uh, holding Regen is in part a vote for, you know, your and the Regen community's philosophy of um, uh, Earth regeneration and all of the specific ways in which you practice that which i don't fully understand yeah no i think that that's that's accurate and and we think a lot also about how do we upgrade the token distribution beyond this sort of like naive sort of like i'm signing blocks and therefore i get uh tokens to something more like i'm administering a credit class and the associated scientific mm -hmm. protocols and digital protocols and trust graph and other things, or I'm providing ecological data, <clears throat> or I'm stewarding land that's that has an associated confirmed digital identity or whatever it is, sim similar. And so it's a very interesting, I mean, that's an interesting uh, fun and challenging kind of like design economics design space to sort of like figure, figure all of that out. It's, uh, it's, it's super fun. So 
Um, do you kind of conceptualize Anoma as a app chain or as a sort of multi-application layer one in quotes? Or, you know, and, and w will people be running, are you going to sort of take the Solana approach in, in a nutshell, where it's sort of like, yeah, we're trying to get a really broad set of users and kind of have settlement and transactions taking place on a single state machine? Or are you aiming a little bit more for sort of the Cosmos approach where it's sort of like, maybe that, but also maybe there's like 30 forks of the Anoma code with individual validator sets that are interoperating different state machines or somewhere in between? Right, great question. So let me compare Anoma specifically to Cosmos because it's the closest from this perspective. Um, and I think it will make the distinctions clear. So uh, compared to Cosmos, Anoma standardizes more of the protocol stack. So in Cosmos, you have different zones, different security domains, different trust domains, which typically run, they almost always run Tendermint and IBC, um, although you can run, you know, you can run those two independently, but mostly they run both of those. And many of them additionally run the Cosmos SDK. And then they have some custom state machine built specifically for their zone, uh, designed to serve a specific application purpose. This is like the app chain model, right? Um, Anoma, so you have kind of compatibility there at the Tendermint layer and at the IBC layer, but not at the application layer, right? You know, one, the Osmosis application is tied to the Osmosis chain. The region credit ledger application is somewhat, maybe you have Cosmosm in between, but somewhat tied to the region chain. You have uh, applications specific to each chain. Um, Anoma abstracts things at a slightly higher level so that security domains and applications uh, are uh, decoupled. They, as in they can move between each other whenever they want. So there's, instead of forking the Anoma code base, there's just one Anoma software package which you would run on your validator, but as opposed to Tendermint, that software package can handle multiple security domains. So you would configure it like, well, I want to participate with these other validators, or I want to participate in Consensi where people pay me in these assets. And you know, you could say, I only want to run these applications if you want to. Um, and then your node would connect to the peer-to-peer -peer network and start serving all of that traffic. So it, say if you wanted to take there are like all of these different applications on Cosmos. Those would become applications on Anoma. But instead of, there's like, a, Anoma has a, a programming abstraction. So you can write those applications on, you know, our, I guess, EVM alternative or so to speak. Um, and then the applications can move between different security domains. So that's, uh, there's no, uh, there's no need to fork the software, in other words, because the software already is not specific to a state machine or a security domain. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. So it's sort of like, um, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense and sounds, and, and like takes away a lot of pain for, um, and a lot of the, you know, it's like, in the cosmos world it's always an interesting intersection between kind of the political economy and economic incentives and the technology it's like what is the how much does it cost for us to align is a perpetual mm -hmm, barrier mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to cooperation it's a perpetual barrier to cooperation in the way that cosmos i think it's an unintentional consequence of sort of like a lot of good thinking and appropriate philo philosophical approach it's like the philosophical approach of Cosmos is right, but that first generation of technology maybe didn't quite get right the standardization questions. Um, and the outcome is it's like coordination is really expensive. Cooperation is really expensive across app chains. Um, it, well, not, not necessarily. There are examples. You just have to, well, it is. You have to do a lot of application work 
to get mm -hmm. to the point where you can very seamlessly like, you know, have interactions via IBC that are really meaningful for your users, or you have to like migrate completely or, you know, dissolve, do mergers and acquisitions. So it creates a very, um, yeah, a, a very interesting ecosystem. And so I'm, you know, I'm just thinking how Enoma is going to disrupt that and change and transform that. Of course, I think what you're saying, though, you know, the first hurdle towards people, um, engaging with that those greener pastures or that blue sky opportunity of you know just being able to choose the right trust assumptions and run with the right set of peers whether mm -hmm. that's you know global set of peers or a local set of peers is one must adopt the vm right and and shift out of wherever you were or develop from scratch in order to then have access to that capability Yes, that's right. Um, now, you know, there are many applications, for example, on Ethereum and even on Cosmos must build a lot of stuff into their application because Ethereum or Cosmos or as operating systems don't do that stuff. For example, they often must build in their own indexing solutions. They often must build in their own like identity abstractions, uh, account abstraction systems. They often must build in their own uh, you know, privacy systems, neither Ethereum nor Cosmos from a tech stack perspective, operating systems perspective support privacy. Um, and Anoma does a lot more you know, from the kind of base level perspective. So hopefully the, you know, it's not necessarily the case that you have to take your big application and port it all to RVM. It's more like there are some parts of your application, which are the actual like key different sort of business logics that you have, or key, like for example, you have logic to represent um, ecological contracts and carbon credits and different, I assume like you have an ontology of, you know, different symbols that correspond to actual things in the real world, right? And that is, you know, to, from Anomis perspective, those things are your application and everything else is not. So all of the like, you know, the Cosmwasm parts of region ledger, the like state indexing parts, all of that we view as in the domain of the stuff that Anoma as an operating system is supposed to, you know, handle and kind of abstract for you and give you control over, of course, you can still specify like what data needs to be stored and for how long and who should do the indexing, but to kind of provide a nice programmatic abstraction barrier so that you don't need to worry about most of those protocols yourselves as that's, an application developer. So. That's, that's awesome. And... Let me ask some hard questions about that. The the that's that's a huge amount of work to to build and upkeep sort of like a standard set of libraries, account abstraction tools, identifier badging, you yeah. know, all, all of these systems. Um <clears throat> that work involves highly intelligent, highly paid humans um and both from for engineers as well as sort of like product um, developer relation people. Um, one of the biggest challenges in, you know, that, that you and I have had many one-on-one <laughs> -on -one conversations with and been involved in many public processes and conversations with have been the challenges that the Cosmos ecosystem has faced in sort of like maintaining and improving the stack that it, that, that is publicly <laughs> available for creating app chains. And um, so it seems to me that, you know, where there is central and Anoma is that there is like this singular software that provides mm -hmm. a standard set of tools that if done appropriately, it creates this, you know, transformative software that can then be applied and improved. How are you all thinking about 
I guess, like the technocracy or bureaucracy or administration of the maintenance and upgrading of that specific tech stack. Right. Um, right, right. What have you learned from, you know, the past? Um, and how are you thinking about it sort of now and moving forward so that you are able to really deliver on that promise, I guess. Right. That's a great question. Um, and this is probably the, you know, in some ways, maybe the hardest question of Anoma in practice. Um, not, it's also perhaps the hardest question for a lot of other projects, but, um, you know, we don't want to introduce a dependency on another priest class of technologists. There's enough of that already. Um, I think our, you know, one thing that we try to do very consciously is approach the questions of standardization at the right level of abstraction. Distraction. As in, we want to standardize things at a layer that you know specifies the interfaces of different parts of the system and how they work together, but not exactly how they work internally. So let me give an example of a zero-knowledge proof system. So zero-knowledge proof systems are an active, still an active research area. Every three months, there's a new paper, someone comes up with a new lookup technique, and it's faster. So it would, Anoma would fail if we tried to pick the right zero-knowledge proof system, because the right zero-knowledge proof system probably hasn't been invented yet. It's probably going to be invented in like 2027 or something. You know, this is like how, you know, Microsoft would have failed if they tried to design the right CPU, um, you know, the CPU to end all CPUs and made their operating system work specifically for that CPU. They would have failed, right? So instead what they did is they they designed an abstraction. They designed, I mean, they didn't necessarily design this. Intel or AMD designed it, but different industry participants agreed on, you know, instruction sets that many CPUs could run. And so Intel could keep building like better hardware, better hardware, and Microsoft could keep building I mean, I don't know if their operating systems got better, but at least different operating systems which use that abstraction, and they both agreed on the abstraction, and agreeing on the abstraction meant that they could make totally different decisions in their separate domains without needing to consult each other or agree with each other. And so Anoma tries really hard to get these abstraction boundaries correct. So for example, we don't standardize a zero-knowledge proof system in any of the architecture. So you could, you know, in the future, say someone in 2026 invents a new zero-knowledge proof system, still does proof verify, you know, the basic interface is the same, but they change all the internals, you should just be able to swap that into a NOMA. Now, you will still need to agree just like when, you know, you're sending proofs around to other parties, they need to know which proof system those proofs are using, you'll need to agree on some things. But that decision does not, is not coupled with any decisions made by like us as the sort of initial architects. So largely our strategy is to try and get those abstraction boundaries correct so that in some sense, we almost don't want to make any decisions, you know, like given the scope of the problem that Anoma tries to solve, we try and kind of fit the interfaces inside the operating system to that problem and make no decisions beyond doing that. Um, so that in the future, if people, you know, also want to solve this problem, then hopefully Anoma has kind of configured things in a way that will make sense for them. And they can make all of the specific decisions on, you know, what CPUs to use or the analogous question there and on who to trust and on what information to disclose, et cetera, themselves. So yeah, I mean, another, I mean, TCP IP, I'd say is a good success story here. It is a complex protocol and it has been pretty successfully distributed and there are many independent companies in the world who have enough TCP IP knowledge that, you know, it's not not dependent on one central party. There are other problems with the internet like DNS, but at least TCP IP as a protocol stack is, is decent. Um, and probably our approach will be, you know, we will try and, I don't know, fund different implementations purposely built by different teams once the spec is to a point where that makes sense, stuff like this. A lot of that's still to be done. So. Got it. So that's how, so so your, your all work is a hard one, which is to 
get to the level of abstraction, the abstraction and complete specification and reference build out such that you can then fund multiple teams to build kind of like competing implementations following the same specs um, and conceivably yes. competing business models use, using those competing specs, just thinking of like long-term so that they're running, they're up and moving and like there's things, they have some way of funding things on their own to keep the implementation alive and to sort of like continue <laughs> operating and other things. I, you know, one thing I was at, that was going through my mind is you were at the very beginning of your explanation when you said, you know, you don't want to become a, yet another sort of like priest class. Um, my first thought was, oh, well, shit, I was just hoping you'd be a better priest class. Because, and let me like elaborate a little bit, because part of the, I think part of the, my perception of part of the problem in the Cosmos ecosystem is that the responsibility of, there's like sort of like a an ideological allergy to taking responsibility for the fact that there's a set of people who are actually acting as a priest class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which then means that they do a really bad job, even though they're de facto the priest class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and so part of, you know, part of this is, of course, sort of like, yeah, preserving, you know, ease of exit and accountability, you know, and accountability cycles and other things like in kind of programming that in, but also just sort of like acknowledging that many of us in some ways are waiting in to be to compete to be techno priests and that like there's a little bit of a song and dance around not wanting to be a, a, a priest, a techno priest while being a techno priest. And that's understandable given people's allergy to the techno, the surveillance capitalist techno priests who give you, you know, very little option and whatever. So I, I get how that all comes about. But for me, at least where I'm sitting, trying to build things and do things is mostly what I want is for people to just like be clear and take responsibility and for to find like you know if i'm going to be an entrepreneur i'm going to be a builder and i'm going to for instance use the anoma vm or whatever it is or, or whatever mm -hmm. and be like cool okay now i'm about to start a multi-year year cycle with many probably as an early adopter probably i need millions of dollars to develop the software needed to go to market with a particular thing and so what i want is uh things that minimize my risk through stability responsibility accountability mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and like great, you know, user uh, responsiveness, like, you know, like P, there's going to be somebody on the end of the phone when I'm like, shit, I can't figure out how this library works or like, yo, I found a bug in the code or whatever it is. Like mostly what needs to happen is like, there's somebody there that's responsive and fast squashes the bug or fixes the thing or deploys the next layer of features that I'm waiting on or whatever it is um, effectively, efficiently, and just like nails that. And that's one of the things that I think that like, like our our the, the web three community broadly you know we struggle with because we want decentralization and we want openness and we want collaboration we want volunteerism and the best models that we can see in the world of like fast effective responsive bureaucracies are also centralized and hierarchical so we sort of tend mm -hmm. to think like oh you know, we can't have that level of efficacy and accountability in the system. We, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but that's my, that's my sense of where we're at. And I guess I'm just, this is more of a provocation. It's like, and not just to you, but to all of us, but also to you guys, because you're building out a nascent 
ecosystem and you still have time to like nail this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what does it look like to have an efficient, effective technocracy at the heart that's accountable to, to users in the community, but takes its responsibility seriously and gets the right people in and those people are stoked. They're like stoked to be to be responsible, accountable, open, you know, open source technocrats that are fucking nailing it, right? What 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 has to happen for that to be true? Right, right. I mean, I think, um, you know, when I say that we don't want to be techno priests, a large part of what I mean is that we don't want to be a kind of continuous class of, I don't know, uh, some kind of central group that is making decisions over time, and everyone has to block on those decisions. So the yeah. reason well, we you've got to and... rip out. You, what, what, I think what you're saying is you, or I, what I would say is you have to have meritocracy and openness. So it's like you and other people who invented it need to be able to both move on and or get kicked out mm-hmm. when you're not the best people for maintaining something. Basically, based yeah, on and we want mer- merit somehow. <laughs> yeah, and I would say we right? want like we want things to be centralized for the right period of time. Yeah. So initially, you know, the design of Anoma is. Central. Centralized. Uh, that is true for all operating systems projects in the history of ever. You cannot design an operating system with, you know, 500 people. There's no, it doesn't make sense. Um, and I don't even think it's like, I don't even think decentralization is a goal in this context. You know, no, we're no, designing no, 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 something no. that's open source and clear, like people can choose to use it. The or goal not. is it's for not, it to work. Know. The goal is right, for it to right. work. And if it works, it could be adopted, improved, run, engaged with. So it's sort of like, it's like a fake goal, decentralization at that, that shouldn't be the goal, but the goal should be something like, you know, at this stage, you guys are still in design. So you got to like maintain the culture of great design, great specification Mm -hmm, design, mm -hmm. great implementation, you know, just like a lot of healthiness and, you know, whatever the attributes there are, but also at this stage, which is, I guess I'm just like, I know it's a hard question, but I'm throwing it out there because I feel like this is the hurdle that in a way Cosmos like hit and fell on its face. And, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to the credit of everyone involved, you know, we all picked ourselves up after we fell on the, on our face and got some major track burn and like kept running. So it's all, you know, so it, it's all good. That's fine. We pick ourselves up, but how are, you know, what, what does it look like to like hurt, you know, nail the first hurdle, which is like shipping this epic piece of software that works or mm-hmm. and associated specification for multiple implementations and right out of the gate be like, yeah. And we have a technocracy that works really well for our community. We're just fucking nailing it. You got to, right. we squash it. You got an idea. We're, we're there for you. You want, you're working on the, you know, whatever it is, like what, who do we look to or do we generate that from scratch to make sure that like the culture, the institutional culture and design and approach is just like best in class? Because I honestly think, I think that's the more than the <laughs> technological effectiveness out of the gate necessarily, which is necessary, but not sufficient. It's going to be like the killer culture. And, and this is something that I, my sense of Solana is that they're, they're really good at something that approximates mm-hmm, mm-hmm, where they like they that you know they, they, there are people if you are in the community and you're developing and you're doing stuff and you have an idea or you have a problem and you call people there's going to be someone there who's professional and delightful and like is ready to like kick ass with you to figure out what's going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yes, I think this is a very important question. And, uh, you know, we're still figuring out many of those parts. Uh, you know, some of the, we have developed specific processes that I think are, are kind of in line with what you're gesturing towards. One of them is that we ended up developing an internal peer review system. So Heliax operates in this kind of on this in this boundary space between research and engineering and academia and industry and you know it's always been kind of amorphous and initially we tried to interface you know we want to share ideas right we want to like develop our own thing and we want to develop something inter interesting and we also want to talk to the rest of the world and uh, in order to talk to the rest of the research world especially academia we initially tried to interface with academic peer review um and this we found was insufficient. Um, it does, it, it's helpful. It allows us to talk to people in academia and they have lots of good ideas, which we try to learn from and uh, beg, borrow, or steal as much as possible, uh, but it is very slow. And we also found that it didn't provide the kind of synthesis that we needed. So we need synthesis of like disciplines within Anoma, right? We need a peer review process that uh, reviews for legibility and consistency of a particular perspective with respect to the whole of ANOMA, like ANOMA is an operating system, which needs to incorporate all of these different components, which come from many research fields. An academic peer review doesn't do this. Academic peer review reviews for consistency and coherence with a subdiscipline. So for example, when we submitted a peer-to-peer -peer paper, we got a review back that was like, here's how to explain your peer-to-peer -peer paper with respect to the specific language and lingo sort of set of abstractions that the peer that this peer-to-peer -peer journal uses which are of course incompatible with like the distributed systems journals and incompatible with the cryptography journals and anoma needs to make them compatible so we needed like a forcing function for synthesis that was very different than the one that was being offered by academic peer review and we also needed something that didn't operate on six to nine month timelines so um, so we built an internal peer review system uh, you could find it's there are a bunch of papers now published on zenodo under the anoma research community perhaps i can provide this as a link and we're hoping to i mean so far we've been kind of beta testing this within heliax in the past six months or so and in 2024 we're hoping to open it up to the broader you know community especially cosmos and ethereum and other interested folks it doesn't have to be a gnome specific we'll just kind of coordinate it as a service um, and i think that that kind of thing um could be a step in the direction of what you're discussing i um, definitely sort of think it's you're right that it's one of the primitives of like a responsible accountable techno priesthood or whatever um is taking ac academic peer review and improving it because it kind of sucks right now. Right. Like, like peer right. review has all these great things, but some of the things that aren't great about it, you listed, which is the time that it takes that you're usually filtering for reductionism and, and a specific discipline instead of a, a cross domain synthesis. And, you know, so it's like shifting a little bit, like what's being like, how the re you know, the, and I also think there's a, there's, you know, I, I also think we could probably all learn, uh, you know, and, and I geek out on this all the time because we also have a peer. So we also have developed a peer review system, although in our case, um, it isn't for the tech stack. Um, mm -hmm. So although it's, that kind of happens ad hoc with pull requests and other things for like the engineering, but not necessarily for like the architecture and specification as much. I mean, it, it's a little ad hoc, but where we are really disciplined and it sounds like there's a lot of convergent evolution is on the scientific process of monitoring, reporting and verifying a specific ecological claim. We have mm -hmm. a peer mm -hmm. review process that is similar but different 
different to an academic peer review process, um, mm-hmm. which is, so it's very interesting. There, and I agree, that's one of the primitives. And I think a lot about how to do that well. I wouldn't say, like, we've had it implemented for a while and it's working as a social process, but then it's like, you know, anyway, there's a whole world there, which is really interesting. I think... Um, I, I look forward to he- looking, like reading over you guys' process and seeing maybe if we can learn from it um, and or and or make suggestions, because I do think that's super key. And, I, you know, my mind is just wondering, like, what are the other primitives and how many mm-hmm. are there, you know, around just sort of like having a really efficient, effective technocracy at the heart of this, where like there are technicians and they are working <laughs> in good faith and in the public in order to provide you know maintenance and evolution of shared infrastructure for a community mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that you know there's there's like there's a set of things that i think we could look at history and abstract from and say here's the primitives that we it, and it's probably not that hard this is probably like an afternoon worth of work in a way mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that then catalyzes maybe a month of like further deeper work and then it's sort of like here's a good here's a good attempt <laughs> and it like mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. we'll we'll try that or something i don't think it's like I don't, I don't think it's the type of problem that's like oh my god we need to spend 10 years on this probably it's it's probably 80 20 we'd probably get most of the way there right, right, right. pretty quick so i do have one more point but i must yeah. use the bathroom super fast one okay go go yeah i'll pause all right back back engage so sort of the the topic of the thread here is responsible accountable dynamic agile mm-hmm, responsive mm-hmm. lovely and delightful techno <laughs> priest right right right, uh, right right maintaining yeah. the core of public infrastructure for a broad open community well i mean this is a research project but the, the one other thing that we've ended up coming up with that may be interesting um uh with regards to your question is um we've come up with a system so my question i've been doing some research into you know trying to understand what organizations are and how they work uh, as a part of participating in one and i think you know the basic question i've been trying to answer over the past year is what is the kind of atomic unit of organizational collaboration? Um, and I think different organizations make this, you know, implicitly they make different choices, whether they're aware of it or not. So in like a very hierarchical organization, I would say the atomic unit is the reporting relationship. So there's like, you have a manager and you do what your manager tells you to do and your manager like tells you what to do. And that's the kind of, you know, everyone understands that, right? And, you know, that organization may be good or terrible. It may work in different ways, but like the fundamental unit that it understands is the reporting relationship. When you want to know what to do, you ask the person you report to and you kind of, they define your success, right? Um, and you could have a very um, a very loose organization with no, you know, no kind of bi-directional relationships of any kind where the atomic unit is just like the project itself. Like if the organization is, um, you know, maybe if it's doing something very simple, this is like if you're planting, no, I don't know, planting seeds is not a good example. If you're making burgers, maybe the atomic unit is making the burger and it's a non-hierarchical burger collective. So everyone makes burgers and everyone can see like, did Chris make five burgers or not? Like done, (laughs) you know, we don't need a lot of organizational infrastructure for this. Um, So now in, um, uh, for example, then there's uh, the workflow system developed by Informal out of originally the collaborative web by Galois. And there the atomic unit is something like the customer performer relationship. So there's uh, in workflow, there's a concept of a performer like does something and a customer who uh, is is you know kind of the person who they report to, but it's not you know the relationship is more on the basis of that specific you know it's called a workflow in workflow, 
and uh, there are yeah, specific processes for dealing with those kinds of relationships. So the system we've come up with takes as a basic organizational unit a promise. So it's mo most similar to workflow, but it's different than workflow a little bit in how we incorporate time. So in workflow, there's kind of just a customer-performer relationship, and that's sort of fairly long-lived. Um, and we've tried to, you know, one thing you might want, or you typically want out of a technocracy, is you want it to, like, respond quickly. You want liveness, right? You want it to do the correct thing, and you want it to respond relatively quickly, because some problems are urgent. Um, and at the very least, you want it to respond predictably. Like, you know, just viewing an organization from the outside, you, like, send messages to it, and you expect to get messages back. And the message you send might be like, here, I found a bug, please deal with it. It might be, here's my idea, please think about it. It might be here, I want a job, please respond to me, you know, a lot of things, right? Um, and I, you know, one, at the very least, one goal of organizational design is to make those responses predictable. So when you send a bug report or when you send a job application or when you send a idea, you should have a sense already when you send it of like when the technocracy is going to get back to you and with what, you know, is it going to get back with a next step? Is it going to get back with a resolution? Is it going to get back with like a paper that incorporates your idea? Uh, you know, you want predictable response timelines. So in order to kind of try and account for that, we have built a system that we call Promise Graph. And Promise Graph, you know, it basically extends workflow and extends the collaborative web with two new aspects. One is time and the other is dependencies. So in building a complex software project, we have a lot of dependencies. And these dependencies, are they're not dependency, they're not only dependencies on, uh, you know, X must happen before Y, they're dependencies on decisions. We must learn X before we can even decide Y, right? Maybe Y is like Y1 or Y2, and we won't have enough information to decide whether we want to do Y1 or Y2 until we learn X. So Promise Graph uh, treats as the first class organizational unit this concept of a promise, similar to workflow promises have two sides. So someone is and we use the same term. So the, the customer is the person to whom the promise is made and the performer is the person making the promise. And this could be a person or a team. Um, but promises additionally have a deadline. So they have time incorporated and some estimations on how long things will take. And they have dependencies, so other promises which must be uh, fulfilled before this promise counts as fulfilled. And what we're kind of currently developing is a bunch of, uh, so we, we, we uh, sort of, from our perspective, the basic organizational unit is a promise. Uh, promises have time and they have dependencies, they have a customer and a performer. And the organization, like the state of collaboration in the organization, can be almost explicitly represented as a graph of promises. And this graph of promises has a kind of temporal and dependency dimension uh, as we've incorporated these aspects into our representation. Um, and we're currently working on, like, we actually have, I can send the link to you, we have a public write-up of what the system is, like similar to the workflow paper. We have a write-up of what the system is, how its ontology works, and we're currently developing a bunch of software tooling um, that's designed to make interacting with this uh, kind of representation very easy, and also designed to provide external observers of the organization or the technocracy reliability measures. As in, if I, you know, when I send the message to the organization, the first thing I get back basically is a promise of like the organization is going to deal with this message in this way. And using these kinds of reliability measures, uh, because the graph of promises, or at least aggregate statistical measures over, over the graph of promises could be made public, 
then the external parties interacting with this organization would have a way to say, oh, like when people got similar promises before, how reliable were those? And, you know, they have a way to audit basically parts of the collaborative structure and the reliability of this organization without, you know, without needing to be in it, without needing to see everything and without the organization itself being, you know, you don't need to trust the organization because all of this promise data could be timestamped into you know, some ledger or something like this. So you have this kind of audit trail that can be inspected. So I think that could be an interesting direction. Love it. No, I think that's, that is a fantastic candidate for kind of what I was provoking is like, what's the, what does it look like to have a, you know, a transparent, accountable, responsible, even dare I say, delightful technocracy right, right. <laughs> working to further the maintenance and evolution of digital public goods. This is exactly the type of um, system, you know, social operating system, maybe that sounds like it's a it's a pretty pretty awesome candidate. So if you if you kind of combine that system that you're beta testing and kind of like peer review and you know maybe a couple of other things um it sounds like there's some good there's some really great uh great thinking about that. So that's very exciting. I definitely would love to um you know and and I'll also try to link in show notes. I'm always a little bad at post production in the podcast. Uh, hopefully that's, hopefully people, listeners are forgiving for just trying to capture these conversations in real time and get them up more than mm -hmm. you know, do too much other work. Cause I invariably have a million other things to do, but, um, I'll do my best on that. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I just think it's a fantastic candidate. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited to read it. I definitely have followed workflow and sort of generally I'm an organizational design and sort of like team geek myself and have ideas ideas about that mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and you know lots of failures <laughs> to uh right. to learn from in the past so always excited to see if there's something to learn or kind of like copy because it's hard it's hard this is hard stuff to have kind of like open collaborative dynamic and professional and accountable without falling into some like god awful behaviorist paradigm where you're like Parrot and sticking people and recapitulating ridiculous hierarchies and all this stuff that is just frankly not very effective, um, but is what we've all been trained to in our current culture. It's, it's you know, that's always the knee jerk, right? It's like, oh my God, right, like, right, right. shift gears back into full hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and you know, I think one one thing I like about this promise craft system in particular is that it strikes this nice balance between like there is a structure, you know, like promises are made to someone. So in yeah. some sense, there's like ad hoc hierarchy, um, yeah. but it's not persistent. It's like task specific. You know, and I mean, frankly, sometimes, you know, sometimes you need hierarchy. If you want to respond to bug totally. reports quickly, you need a hierarchy like done. There's and, no and, other way and, to do this. and high functioning um, automatic. And there's also different right. people in different domains. I mean, sometimes I think through a framework, um, it's core team, um, field team, task team, where you have different levels of durability. So like a core team's promises are to kind of like a durable, like a, a durable entity, like a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I'm promising to offer like a board as a board member or whatever, like strategic guidance to, you know, I have this like ongoing long-term multi-year set of mm -hmm. responsibilities and ways of thinking and have to show up for that. And it's a very different thing than being on a task and there, you don't do one or the other, but like a task 
task team is like, I'm responsible for getting back, like for, you know, working with this specific group of people to like publish the year in review report or right. I'm right, responsible right. for, you know, whatever the specific thing is. Um, and then the field team in that framework is responsible to the pro it's sort of like in the graph it's like who are the promises made to right which might right. be a, which might be another way of sorting the graph which is like there are um promises made to customers there are promises made to team members there are promises made to sort of more amorphous like communities or other th th mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. i guess or missions i guess like i may i might be making a promise to like the future generations or something like that. I don't know. Like that's, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's a little bit more abstract, but like the promise to a, um, so that there's gradations of how ephemeral that is with a field team in this framework being quite, you know, it's, it's like a stakeholder group. Like I'm making a promise to, you know, um, land stewards or scientists. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's more like there's a durable objective, I guess. Right. And I don't know how that relates and how you guys are thinking about that. I guess, you know, this is sort of like I'm smashing together a couple different frameworks. That's like core team, field team, task team. But also we do a lot of stuff with OKRs, with objective and key results. Although I don't feel like very proud about how we've implemented it, but we try to think through and mm -hmm. think about that. Sort of like with the relationship being that you, it isn't that the, again, there's different types of promises. Like we may be making a promise about an objective that has some like two or three specific measurable key results that support that objective. Like the object, mm -hmm. objective might be like in a Nomus case, it might be, you know, to have the most delightful developer experience, you know, in managing, um, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in, in managing trust between counterparties or something like that. That's our objective by. By twenty by by the end of twenty twenty four, we have the most delightful uh, developer experience for people developing um, disclosure applications. And the key results are, you know, X, Y, and Z. We have a hundred percent bug squashing. We have reached some developer adoption metric, and we have, you know, whatever it is. That's where you're getting like really, you know, specific. And then there's a set of promises to achieve those things, right? So there's like a planning process where you're like adhering to a North Star and all these things that then compiles down to individual people saying, I'm accountable for this. Right, 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 right. To those things. So anyway, I don't know how that kind of computes. And like, I guess what I'm, where I'm going with this is sort of like the ability for an organization to have a dynamic strategy that people are magnetized to and are in service to, in addition to being accountable to sort of like mm -hmm. discrete, you know, functional engage engagements between each other. Right, right. I mean, I think quite similar to what you're describing, the way we conceptualize things, uh, planning is centered around the decomposition of promises. So for example, the whole Anoma research team is making a promise to finish the Anoma specs by March or something. And then before we can make that promise, before we can convince the person we're making the promise to that we'll be able to, you know, actually keep it, we need to do a lot of decomposition of that promise into like, oh, a bunch of specific promises from certain people who are writing certain parts of the specs to other people who are synthesizing those parts and other people who are reviewing those parts, right? So our planning process is in fact the like decomposition and complexification or specification of the promise graph into a much more specific 
a specific like topology of promises for a particular higher level task or goal. Um, yeah, and I think um, you know in one thing that is slightly different than with our system and workflow is that in our system promises are basically defined by what it counts for the promise to have been satisfied by a definition of done. So uh, we're always focused around you know a specific unit of work. The customer needs to be able to judge whether it is done or not. So in a case of like an OKR, like you're talking about, that could be represented as a promise where, you know, done or not is based on these specific goals. Um, I haven't thought so much about just like generally we want to optimize in this direction without, um, uh, you know, you could make a promise that says that uh, you'd still need someone to judge it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think that that's also important. Well, the other um, big question here to provoke is who decides who decides and how does it relate to, you know, like so there can be a measure of effectiveness through this sort of like transparent promise graph approach but effective towards what and how is that how is that right. decided and who is deciding it and um making that you know potentially making that explicit and either linking it to governance or not right like right like, right. like ethereum famously is completely decoupled from any you know um explicit governance in terms of how the community decides what's important for mm -hmm. the evolution of the protocol right cosmos is more famously like tried to deeply couple explicit governance with mm -hmm. what's being decided both of them are not very great examples of it working very well i would say and sometimes yes sometimes no i don't know not what i would aim for if, if right, i'm right. trying to create a really great you know best in class kind of alternative to that and so you know sort of like how is strategy and resource allocation decided? Um, not just how are we judging our effectiveness once that decision has been made. And that doesn't, you know, it's sort of like, and, and we have this chicken or the egg problem as well. Like in, in our case, in Regions case, the chicken or egg problem has to do with you know, we've created a protocol that we call the registry program that is a way of creating new ecological credits, uh, mm -hmm. how you report, how you run a peer review process, what you're accountable for, who's accountable for what in this sort of like complex scientific and legal process of creating a unit that represents mm -hmm. a promise between a land steward and someone who's buying that unit. Mm -hmm, and we mm -hmm. call that, it's called the program, but you know, so it's the region registry program and you follow mm -hmm. that program to sort of like generate a credit, but mm -hmm. who decides how upgrades happen to the program and under what conditions. And, you know, that happens currently in an ad hoc way. The answer is in all honesty, we decide when that happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we do that through stakeholder processes and internal review processes and other things, but making those implicit or tacit cycles and processes more explicit and, and kind of like dog fooding our own tools so that there's like a little mini process that the people who are actually currently responsible just need to like sign on a group account or whatever. Or, or, you know, or a DAO DAO implementation, a little thing that says we've decided to move from version 1.3 of the registry program to 1.4, and you can refer to the GitHub pull requests or whatever, and we've all reviewed it and we've pressed the button and we've done it in service mm -hmm. to this larger aim, right? Again, which is this thing. Anyway, it's a... This like all, again, kind of continuing to boil down to what does it look like to have a responsive, you know, engaged sort of technocracy in service to public a, right, a, a right. project is, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard question, but somehow feels 
in a way like that's maybe even more so than the actual product that we create is really important because mm -hmm. it's it's like, I don't know, it's not an either or, but the how and the what get really deeply entangled. So, right, right. I mean, um, there are a lot of questions there. And at least, you know, our approach with Promise Graph is, I think, more modest in that what we're trying to create is a tool for making parts of the organizational relationship and the organizational promises and the topology of who is responsible for what explicit easily, as in like they're already there and making a tool and a standardized language that allows people to make those relationships explicit in a way that is legible to other people to whom they disclose them. Um, yep. You know, I think like the uh, whether or not a specific topology is correct or whether, you know, how to represent amorphous entities like community. Uh, these are hard questions that the Promise Graph system does not try to answer. Are you guys um, building go, the Promise yeah. Graph system into some sort of sort of like um, proto-DAO tooling for use on Anoma in the future? Is that kind of like, you know, yes. okay, we're in the middle of this, we're trying to do this, we're trying to encode this so that then groups of people can kind of like collaborate and yeah. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one, another explicit design goal is to be uh, sort of agnostic to organizational boundaries. Um, all the, the the judgment is like localized always to the um, customer of a promise. So if you make me a promise, I decide whether or not I like accept that promise. And if I accept that promise, there's this chain of responsibility. So because I'm accepting that promise as a dependency into some promise that I'm making for somebody else, I also, you know, in order for my promise to be credible, I need your promise to be credible to me. So nothing about the system says anything about like who is paying people or who is, you know, um, what the, the legal organizational boundaries are. But um, it does, uh, it, it, and it doesn't assume, you know, that the people who are making promises need to like only accept promises from other people who they trust to be able to complete them. And hopefully this will, or at least in principle, it seems like it would be able to work across organizational boundaries. So you could even have a responsive technocracy that is not, you know, not an legal sense controlled by one party or one like group or DAO or whatever, but is uh, just a graph of promises that has enough information that's the information is distributed, but enough information about reliability and locality that, you know, it can be very responsive, right? Because even in organizations that are, you know, there are large bureaucracies, which are relatively competent, they're rare, and maybe they're going away, but they do exist. And large bureaucracies, which are relatively competent, you know, I think, are not relatively competent because they're like controlled by one person. They're relatively competent because the individual links in the chains are reliable because people have gotten used to like their specific relationships with other parties and they can make and receive promises and they've standardized some procedures in ways which work reliably. And so as a, you know, the reliability of a large organization is basically the multiple of the reliability of all of its parts. So if one part is very unreliable, the whole thing will be very unreliable, right? Even if most of the parts are reliable. Only if all of the parts are reliable will you get a product that is still reliable to an external user. Um, and so our, our goal is to try and model, like uh, be able to capture those kinds of statistics over time and to make them available to just the individuals within the organization who are making promises yeah that makes sense uh, you know i guess sort of the last thought brainwave before we wrap up here is just that you know the, the holy grail here is to have i would say is to have probably a couple of different formal um i don't know i don't really know if this is a schema an ontology or a taxonomy but somewhere in between mm -hmm. a couple formal formal expressions of 
um, the, the language of promises mm-hmm. to choose from, um, be able to choose one as an organization, and then um, be able to mine the transcripts of meeting conversations mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to auto-populate a promise graph mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, out of the places where we actually make promises. Right, 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 right. Where yes, we're I having a conversation, thinking. we're hashing yeah, things yeah, out, yeah. and we get to the place where I'm saying, I'm, I promise that I'm going to, you know, get this done by this date. And, you know, and we have consensus about what the promise criteria is. And we can mm-hmm. actually, you know, because so much of the implementation of these things falls short at the data entry point where mm-hmm. we then, okay, great. And then I go and I get cranking and I'm doing stuff and whatever. And, you know, I may may or may not have actually gotten that promise entered correctly into the abstract system, wherever it is. Is it on Notion or Asana or over in GitHub or whatever it is? And then by the time I get there, maybe it's changed a little bit or the or the other people. And because I didn't get it in, the people who have dependencies didn't get it in. And then there's a cascading. Anyway, so so much of it is actually, you know, the the yeah. So so how do we get to that user like sort of like user experience that just really clicks in with the human mm-hmm, process mm-hmm. of making agreements with one another through our verbal um, communication. I, I'm excited. I know we're going to cross that threshold. It's just like a couple years before, you know, Google Calendar and Docs and all the other things kind of created this like lovely integrated cloud, multiple people collaborating experience. I was bumping up and being like, man, it'd be really great if I could just collaborate with somebody on a single document. Gosh, this is so annoying. <laughs> then it happens. Like, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. but it took a little bit of time. It was a little lag. I kind of feel like we're at a similar moment where we're about to have the like voice to text LLM, you know, constrained constitutional, you know, model ability to get into that kind of user experience where we can, you know, make commitments and agreements and then encode them and track them um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and express them with one another without me having to go back into my work tracking so that it, so that I get to get served the data and I get to see the data right. and I get to engage with the data instead of having to, you know, go take 30 minutes to g- do grooming or whatever. So anyway, that's uh Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to see, I want the, you know, there's this scene from the foundation novels by Asimov and I haven't seen the TV series or whatever. So I'm just talking about the thing in my mind when I read the books where I don't know if it's Harry Selden, but some of the psychohistorians are looking at the graph of psychohistory um, and kind of twiddling threads and seeing how things change and stuff like this. And they have, I forget what it's called. Uh, I don't know. They have a device that kind of renders the thing in three dimensional space. Mm -hmm. And this is how I imagine you would want to render the promise graph. Like you want almost a holographic projection because it's a graph. It's, it's like mapping it to two dimensions is okay, but it's better to have more. Um, And where you can see like, which are the links and which are the, you know, there's no one true perspective, but if you aggregate different data over time, you can analyze reliability. You can analyze like when things happened, you can trace back, you know, you want to be able to trace back if some promise was broken without, you know, without saying that like some person did a bad thing, right? The system itself in collective organizational memory needs to adjust so that it can make reliable promises in the future. And in order to do that, you need to be able to trace back the causal chain to like which, you know, dependency of this was broken, which thing had to be replanned, like 
how do we adjust our model of promise making in the future um, so that we can provide you know, better reliability. So yeah, I think there's a lot of fertile ground there also with LLMs for data entry, as you mentioned, with you know conversions between formats of different visual and textual representations of things. People have very heterogeneous preferences, um, but also with kind of a stable ontology backing that all so that there is a single source of truth um, and everything kind of interfaces through with that. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I love it. This has been super fun, Chris. Um, I know um, I've got a couple other things to to dig into today, so I think this is probably a good, good moment to wrap. Um, but thanks so much for giving, you know, giving given us the time to kind of walk through um, the depths of Enoma and some of the, you know, the intention and the processes. I certainly learned a lot. I've got some great notes of things that, I, you know, are good provocations and, um, you know, new ways of thinking about things. So I'm excited uh, uh, about that. And um, yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks for Happy starting. Happy New Year. Yeah. Is, Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, until next time.